Very, very glad you're here this morning, everyone. Um, for the next three weeks, it's kind of the time where you, you, know, you just fill it with something you know, in the calendar. Um, but I've kind of done the opposite. It's tempting at this time of year to kind of tread water before you get into the real stuff in you know, later January or something. What I've got for, the, for you for the next three weeks is a series of three sermons that are kind of just random bits of the Bible called Bits of the Bible That Are Really Important. Um, I've chosen three passages of the Bible that are really central, crucial passages for the Christian faith. Um, they should be absolutely foundational to our faith. I hope they're passages that, as we get familiar with them, will, will uh, stir up our hearts, cause us to love our Saviour more, cause us to understand more, deepen our faith, all those things. Um, so if oh, the passages are, today it'll be Romans 3, next week it's uh, Leviticus 16, and Ephesians 2 will be the third week. Um, if they aren't familiar to you yet, um, I want to invite you to make them familiar. Um, these should be passages you instinctively turn to for different aspects of understanding your faith. Um, so if you don't know them yet, um, become familiar with them. Uh, they're wonderful passages. Um, if you do know these bits of scripture, then I hope you're rejoicing at the opportunity to look at them again. Uh, the reason is, um, I think there's a, a common myth out there that if you, you know a bit of the Bible, the preacher gets up to preach it and you, you roll your eyes and go, oh, I've done this, tick, next, next bit, I don't know, please. Um, I think it, it's actually not the mark of Christian maturity to, to respond to this sort of thing with dismissive attitude, like, oh, I know that. Um, Christian maturity looks like, I want to know that more. I want to be reminded of that more. I want to treasure that more. I want to recall it more. I want to delight in those promises of God more. So if you know this part, these parts of the Bible more, can I invite you to delight in them more, to, to treasure them more, to know and feel the implications more? Uh, besides freshly coming to God's promises is the way he keeps us in his kingdom, the way he helps us journey to the kingdom of God at the end of the race. Now, Romans chapter 3 is the one we're doing today. So if you turn to that, um, Kathy's going to come and read it in just a moment. Romans chapter 3, page 1129 in my Bible. I'm sorry, I have no idea what it is in the, the large print one, if you, you've got that. Um, now, Romans chapter 3, as you're turning that up, um, a lot of people think this is the most important passage in the entire Bible. This is the one. If you don't know anything else, know this one. That's what a lot of people... So most famously, a guy called Martin Luther um, said, this is the most important bit of the Bible. This is, this is it. <laughs> you know this, you know the Christian faith. This is front and centre. So I want to invite you this morning to look at the most important bit. Maybe it, if you're not into the most important bit, I don't know. It's really important. I'm willing to say that. Uh, we should listen to it carefully. Um, I'll just say one more thing before I get Kathy up. Um, 1% of the listeners, which might not be anybody in the room, are wondering about, oh, what about this new perspective on Paul thing? Um, I'm not ignoring it. Come and talk to me about it if you're interested. But otherwise, this is what the passage means. But the rest of you just ignore what I just said, and Kathy's going to come read the Bible. <laughs> I'm presuming that you've already turned to the right page. So I'm reading from Romans 3, verses 19 through to the end of the chapter. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ 
to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, I said it was really, really important. I didn't say it was easy to understand. (laughs) Did you notice I didn't say that? Um, There's a lot of dense stuff going on there, like the the, the sentences seem to be long and, and, and put together like a lawyer wrote it. And there's some hard words there. Um, it is like a lawyer wrote it, actually. It's, um, it's kind of that style, incidentally. Um, but we're going to unpack it. And um, I think by the end, I hope you can rejoice at what it says because it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. Now, if you've got Romans in front of you, um, it's worth understanding the context because I, I have um, bad news for you this morning and then I have very, very good news. But you need to understand the bad news first. Um, so if you've got uh, Romans there in front of you, if you just flick back one page, I want you to understand the context of where, where we've gotten to. From about Romans chapter 1, verse 18, so on the first page of Romans in my Bible, from there right down to chapter 3, verse 20, is kind of one section, okay? Um, what that one section is about is about the big, enormous problem that humanity has. It's the biggest problem we've had. It's the problem that humanity's had uh, since Adam. Uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, and Paul is trying to, the, the guy who wrote it, is trying to create a case to show you, look, humanity is really guilty. There is a really, really big problem here. You get to 321, and there's God's solution to the problem. But we're going to look at the problem, for, uh, uh, the problem for a while before we get to the solution. But if you've got that in your head when you read Romans, uh, the first bit, it'll help you a lot. Problem is 118 to 320, and from 321, God's wonderful solution. Um, the problem we have, according to Romans 1.18 to 3.20, we'll look at a couple of bits in it, is staggeringly huge, it's horrifying, it is overwhelming. Here is the problem. God is the judge of the whole world. On the day of judgment at the end of history, he will judge every human being who has ever lived and give to people what they deserve, either eternal reward or eternal punishment. And that's a big, big problem for people like us. 
because each one of us has done wrong and God is a good and just judge who can't just let us off the hook. He can't show favoritism. He can't just sweep it under the carpet. It doesn't work that way. And here's the bad news. That means that God will send every human being who's ever lived to hell because that is what we deserve. Because that's what we deserve for how we lived our lives. Now, I know that's a shocking claim to make. Uh, he spends three chapters making it because it's hard for human beings to accept it. Um, but here's why he makes the, uh, makes the case over three chapters. In order to get the right remedy, you need to know what the problem is first. You need to diagnose the disease, right? I want to imagine, some of you won't have to imagine maybe, that you have a hypochondriac child. Some of you might have to imagine that, some won't. I don't know. I don't know your children that well. Imagine that you are just uh, really used to them screaming at absolutely everything and nothing. And so they're in the other room and they scream and you, you don't go and look because you know it's nothing. They've stubbed their toe or something. Uh, if you go outside and actually look and diagnose the problem, you might realise they've broken their leg or something quite bad's happened. And this time it really matters. You need to look the problem in the face before you can solve it. If you just stay inside, you don't go look, you can't know the solution. You can't fix it. You can't embrace the solution no matter how readily available it is. Now, God offers a solution that is really, really available. But you need to label the problem first. And so, friends, I need to be really upfront, and this is true of me as well. I want you, every single one of you, to be convinced that on the basis of your own deeds, you deserve God's judgment and not eternal uh, reward. We deserve God's judgment. I want us to be convinced of that in the here and now, today, and not wait for the day where God says that to us, because that's when it's too late. Because if you diagnose the problem properly now, you can embrace God's solution now. That's what's going on in Romans 1 to 3. So you're in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He starts his case talking about God's anger. The word wrath just means anger. It says, 118, the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he goes on. Why does he go on and on? Well, he goes on and on. Because when you talk to people and try to tell them how bad they are, everybody assumes you're talking about that person over there, don't they? We know it's really other people, not me. But he wants us, as we continue reading Romans 1, 2, to start being convinced, oh, I think he might be talking about me. I think I'm included in this group of people who should be really worried. And so you get to the end of of chapter 1 and you read it and you go, oh, that's a bit over the top for me. Sure, there's people like that. 128. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Uh, sorry, verse 30. They, they're gossips, they're slanderers, they're God-haters, they're insolent, they're arrogant, they're boastful, they invent ways of doing evil, they disobey their parents. Oh, come on, that's a bit full-on, isn't it? That, that, that's not really me, that's those other people. And so he continues, come to chapter 2, verse 1. Let's grab another group and just prove to them that they are in, included in that. You, therefore, have no excuse, you people who pass judgment on other people, for at whatever point you judge another... You're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. How often, friends, have we judged someone else, condemned their action? If we're really honest with ourselves, we've done it a whole lot of times ourselves. And so he continues building his case. You're included in this group of people who are condemned. And he comes uh, down to chapter 2 and he paints a picture of what judgment day looks like. Um, Pretty clearly, I think. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 5. And there's an important bit here that we're going to have a look at. Chapter 2, verse 5. And here's the picture of Judgment Day. It says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up 
wrath, anger from God, against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who persist, uh, who by persistence in doing God good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Uh, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for Jew and then Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. Here's a picture on the screen, if, um, if we move to it. Here's what Judgment Day looks like in pictures, right? Here's a mass of people come to Judgment Day. There's two boxes they can fit in on Judgment Day. They'll either be put on, in the unrighteous box on your left. It's the same for me, on left. <laughs> uh, or the righteous box on the right. Righteous means they deserve eternal life. Unrighteous means they don't. They deserve condemnation. And each will receive what they deserve, what their deeds have earned is what it says there. Did you see that in the passage? Uh, it was verse 6. It might be surprising at this point. He moves on. He says, God will repay each person according to what they've done. See how it works? It's, it's quite straightforward, isn't it? The judge gives people what they deserve. And so some people will deserve to be named righteous, uh, innocent before God, and receive eternal life. And others will deserve condemnation and receive that from God too. Let's just pause for a sec. This word righteous is going to be very, very important to what we're doing. Um, righteous means um, completely in the right, basically. So you notice it talks about God's judgment as righteous in the passage here somewhere. Verse 5, it says, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That basically just means God will do what's right and just. He'll, uh, he will do a judgment that will be seen to be fair, right, and won't have any corruption or any favoritism in it. Um, when you use the word righteous to talk about the people in the, who are being judged, though, it's used slightly different. Now, you're supposed to imagine like a law court setting, like you've gone to court. God's the judge, and here's what happens in the law court. You turn up, the trial happens. At the end of it, the judge in his judgment seat, he might bang a gavel, I suppose, we can imagine that, um, and he declares a sentence on the accused. The sentence will be one of, the two, one of two things, and that will be their status before him and before the court. The status is either you are unrighteous, you're guilty, or you are righteous, meaning you are innocent of all charges and you are in good standing with the court. It's one of those two things. That's what's going on with the word righteous. When we come to the judgment seat, we'll either be named righteous or unrighteous. Righteous, we really need to be named righteous. Completely in the right with God and in right relationship with him forever. It means there is absolutely nothing in your life, if you're righteous, that God can hold against you. You're innocent before him. We really need to be named righteous on that day. But I read the passage and I'm filled with doubt, frankly. Because like I read the two, the two groups, right? You read, read about them and it says, you repay each person according to what they've done. Well, that's complicated. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good, well, I try to do good. So, so surely I can be that. But you read verse 8 about the other group, the unrighteous, and you're at least filled with doubt. Verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, who here could say they weren't self-seeking at some point? or at least a lot of the time, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. At very best, I think, based on what this passage says, you can just have doubt. Maybe God, when I get there, will say I'm okay. Most likely he'll say I'm not. And so a common problem I've come across with people uh, for a very long time is just anxiety about the day of judgment, right? Just fair enough. How do I know I'm good enough? <laughs> What if God calls me to account for things that I'd rather forget about 
what if on balance I'd done more wrong than good because God knows stuff that I've forgotten about. I mean, you you read verse 16 of chapter 2. It says, on the day of judgment, God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ. He judges my secrets. I've got no hope at this point. And so he continues making his case. And you start realising, I'm in trouble here. Here's another stressful problem. When do you find out the verdict? When will you find out the verdict about Judgment Day? When you get there. You don't know on this, on, on this basis until you get there whether you're right with God or not. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff in between where he talks to Jewish people because Jewish people are God's special people. And on the way through, he keeps on saying, you're the same as non-Jewish people, you're all sinners, uh, just as much in need before God's judgment seat. Eventually, he comes, we, we had Psalm 14 read to us, which is a psalm that's quoted. Come, come to chapter 3 there, and you'll see from chapter 3, verse 10, it's just a long list of quotes from other bits of the Bible, the Old Testament. And um, they're not nice quotes, they're quotes designed to say, look, the Bible says over and over again, people are guilty. People, people will suffer God's judgment. And you go, yeah, I'm guilty of that too. And you get to 3.19 and 20, and there's the grand conclusion. We've got this picture of judgment day. Unrighteous and righteous will be named on that day. Have a look at what verse 19 says of chapter 3. Now we, know, oh, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Every mouth will be silenced. Have you ever been caught out so bad in something that you've gone to open your mouth and say something and no no noises come out? It's that sort of picture. You've just been so caught out. Every mouth will be silenced. There'll be no excuses. And it'll be clear there's no excuses. We'll be guilty. And so there's that horrific statement in verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. So we fix our diagram to that. He's made his case. By works, nobody will be named righteous on that day. We'll all fit in the unrighteous box. And that is a very big, horrific and overwhelming problem. But it's a problem we need to look in the face. Friends, first thing I want you to be utterly clear on is that you don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve eternal life either. We need to be very clear on God's diagnosis on us before we get to the day of judgment. So I want to say, accept the diagnosis, you're a sinner, and accept the certainty of the outcome of what that means on judgment day. Condemnation. If we stand in front of him on our own two feet, on the basis of our works, it's condemnation. That's all we can expect to receive. But for Jesus. So very wonderful what comes next. The, say the tone shifts in chapter 3, verse 21, is understatement of, the, the, of history. But now, a new era has dawned. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 21 with me again, and everything has changed. Now that Jesus has come and brought out a new era, everything has changed. I like big butts, and I cannot lie. And this is the biggest butt in the Bible. But now. But now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Previously, we've been talking about Judgment Day with no Jesus in the picture. He's just the judge. He's in the picture. He's the judge. He's not the saviour yet in, in the way Judgment Day has been described. But now Jesus has come and everything's changed. 
righteousness of God. First we hear righteousness of God, right standing before God, is available to everyone apart from perfect obedience to the Lord. Did you see that? Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known. So apart from me actually obeying the law perfectly, I can be named righteous before God. That's good news because I tell you what, I haven't obeyed him. Far out, I'm guilty of a lot of things. That's good news. There's a way of being declared righteous on judgment day apart from perfect obedience to the law, apart from me getting what I deserve. And the Old Testament tells us about it. That's why we read the Old Testament, to which the the law and the prophets testify, the rest of verse 21. Where is this way that I can be right in the day of judgment? Real simple stuff, folks. The answer is (laughs) Jesus. But if you haven't heard it before, it's wonderful new news. You just put yourself in that seat again. Verse 22, this righteousness, this perfect innocence, right standing before God the judge, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God's way of salvation is in Jesus. How do I get this way of salvation Jesus offers? Like, he's got it. How do I I get it from him? Do I say Jesus three times? Do I tap my feet together? Like, what, what, what action do I do to get some of this thing that Jesus is offering me? It says, through faith. In Jesus Christ. Now, we should talk for a minute about what faith is, because it's not obvious. And I think our society is very confused about it and thinks faith is something that weird religious people have uh, and normal people don't. Okay? Um, faith is actually a normal thing. It's an everyday thing. It's not a strange religious thing. Um, and it's not an effort thing. It's not like some people have this supernatural faith effort thing that they can do and other people can't. It's an everyday activity. And it just means relaxing from effort, to saving ourselves, and placing our confidence elsewhere instead. I've got a list of definitions because we've got so many big words today. Well, words anyway. Uh, here's some, here's some th- ways to think about what faith is. It just means trust, depend, rely. way I like to, to say it means place your confidence in. Place your confidence in something. Every day we place our confidence in things. We know what that is. You place your confidence in something. Uh, the, the verb version we've heard is the same word um, in, in Greek, so English doesn't help us out in a number of ways in this passage. But anyway, um, so the noun is faith, the verb is believe. It's the same word, basically. It means place your confidence in. I'm, I'm faithing. We don't have that verb in, in English. Um, I'll give you an illustration. Um, all of you at the moment have placed your faith in your chairs. Uh, the fact that you are sitting down means you have faith in your chair because otherwise you would not be sitting in it. How did you put your faith in your chair? Well, you looked at it, you decided it was worthy of your faith because it looked like it would hold you up, and you sat down and you placed your faith in it. That's, that's all it was. You didn't need special faith power to do that. It wasn't a magical thing. It was just, I recognise the chair can hold me up, and it, it did. Now, I've got two stools here. Faith is only as good as its object, right? So I've got two stools here. Um, if you sat on this one, I think you'd be happy. I think if you sat on this one, I think you'd be sad um, because this one broke the other day. It's my puppet theatre one and it takes a great deal of effort to sit on now. I'm going to have to fix that. But See, faith's as good as this object. Faith would do you no good if your chair broke under you, but you judged your chair could hold you up. I will place my confidence in that chair and put my butt on it. And you did and it turned out well and I'm very happy for you. As you see, faith isn't an effort thing, is it? You sat down, you actually took effort away. You took effort off your own feet. I'm tempted to put the stool here and preach the rest of the sermon just sitting on it. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but it's actually just taking away the effort, placing your confidence, placing your trust, getting something else to do the effort. It's the same with Jesus. Faith is taking away that burden of earning the verdict righteous on judgment day from ourselves, placing my confidence on Jesus. Jesus has earned it for me. I have confidence in Jesus to secure my verdict before the Father. I'm righteous because of him. 
That's what faith is. It's just, he's done it for me. I trust him. I'm depending on him. I'm relying on him. The righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple. Who's it for? Uh, have a look at verse 22. Every phrase in this is, is, is wonderful. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe or all who have a faith. He repeats it because it's so important. He's not saying, who's it for? Special faith people, special Jews, special religious people, churchy people. No, it's for everyone who will trust in Jesus. Everyone. Because everyone alike has the same need, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of God's standards, fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So there's salvation. There's a right standing before God available in Jesus. Now, the rest of the passage says, basically, uh, that this, this paragraph tells us how he did it. How on earth does Jesus achieve a right standing before God for me? I've got to have faith. Do, like, what did Jesus do? Did he sit in meditation and achieve salvation? Did he, his miracles brought salvation? Or did his inherent niceness bring salvation? Like, how did Jesus bring salvation? That's what the rest of the passage is about. Now, let's just have a look at verse 24, 25. Uh, and there's some key words which we'll put up on the screen in a minute. Um, and we need to define them to really understand what's going on here, um, where our salvation comes from. It says, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. They're the, they're the words, if you didn't get my intonation. Uh, you'll see them on the screen anyway. Um, so we've heard the word righteous before, right? We're in right standing before God. It's a status before the law court, in right standing before God. Now, again, English doesn't help us out because we've got no word for righteousify. That's not good English. So we use the word justify, even though it's the same word in Greek. Um, Crossing languages has all sorts of challenges. But when you hear the word justify in verse 24, it just means righteousify, uh, declared righteous, right? Freely by God's grace. And all are declared righteous by God's grace through redemption that comes from Christ Jesus. So there was that one. Um, oh, sorry, before we keep going, though, this is wonderful. On this way of looking at the Day of Judgment, with Jesus in the picture, when can you know you're in right standing with the court? When? It's changed, doesn't it? Before you couldn't know until you got there. Now you can know because you're trusting in Jesus that you're in right standing with him forever. Now. You don't have to wait. You can know with certainty what your eternal destination is now. Gives us an assurance that nobody else can give, Jesus. Verse 24. Have a look at it there with me. Next word it uses is grace. You've got to understand this word. We just sang about it. Wonderful song. Grace is just the idea of generosity or an undeserved gift. It's something you didn't earn. Uh, in this case, it's not just something we didn't earn. It's the complete opposite of what we earned and deserved in that uh, we receive salvation from God that we didn't deserve, which is the opposite of the condemnation we did deserve. Jesus gives a free gift. God gives a free gift through his son. It costs us absolutely nothing to be in the right with God. Jesus takes all the cost onto himself instead. <laughs> Now, in, in theology talk, uh, we're talking about a, a, an idea that's on the screen there called justification by faith alone. Uh, it's a wonderful phrase. I want you to remember it and I want you to treasure it because it's awesome. It really is. What's it about? Justification, declared righteous before God. How? By faith in, in Jesus, like is the, you know, what you're supposed to understand by that. By faith and alone is a very, very important word. Why is it an important word? Because we're saved by grace. And if you say, oh, I'm saved by Jesus plus, fill in the blank with anything you've lo- you-, you want and you've lost grace. 
Because grace means he gives it to us. It's an undeserved gift. So I'm very concerned whenever people say, I'm saved by Jesus, plus you've got to, I don't know, go to Mass or, or, or do good deeds, and, plus anything. The Gospel's undermined at that point. We're justified by faith in Jesus alone, trust in him alone. Next word uh, in verse 20, uh, 24 still, it's very dense, isn't it? Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption means deliverance from slavery or from bondage, basically. So if I was kidnapped, I'm sure my wife would be willing to sell all our stuff to pay the kidnappers to, to get me out of slavery. That would be a redemption, uh, securing my release from slavery. Jesus has secured our release from sin and death and condemnation is what that's about. Uh, Verse 24, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus when he died on the cross is the next thing we're going to hear about. Have a look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Now, when you read blood there, you're supposed to understand Jesus died on the cross. It kind of stands in the place of Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Um, this sacrifice of atonement thing, what's that about? Um, well, two ideas. Sacrifice is where in the Old Testament, we'll look at this next week actually, um, in the Old Testament you'd have an animal that would uh, die instead of you in your place for your sin. It was a symbolic thing actually telling us about um, Jesus coming in the future. It's Jesus taking our place, being judged, being a sacrifice for us when he died on the cross. Um, the word atonement is an easy way to remember that. Atonement means at one moment. At one moment, brings reconciliation, at, makes people at one, brings them together. So by Jesus' sacrifice, his death, he's brought us reconciliation with God. He's made us in right relationship, right standing with him again, is, is what that means. Now, I'm going to get a bit techy with you because I think it's important. Have you got your Bible there, verse 25, and you'll notice there's a footnote. In my one it says D. Um, has anybody got anything besides sacrifice of atonement in the Bible they've got in front of them, by the way? Come on, this is the interactive part. Has anybody got anything besides that phrase in their translation, if you've got a different one? Nobody's got the word propitiation. Has anybody got a footnote that says propitiation? That's all right. It should be there in a footnote. Um, you, you'll see in your footnote, it says, the Greek for sacrifice of atonement refers to the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant. And you go, okay, that's lovely. Thanks for that bit of information, which I can do absolutely nothing with. We'll talk about it next week. Um, basically, what's being referred to is an old fashion concept which people don't use much anymore propitiation to bear and turn aside anger to turn aside judgment jesus is the propitiation for our sins by his death on the cross is what's been got at it's a more precise thing that's going on there in the background um, we'll learn about a bit more about it next week jesus bore the anger of god against our sins so it was turned aside from us so we would never have to suffer it now, let's just talk about that for a minute because I think people are a bit uncomfortable with the idea that God's angry at all. It kind of doesn't seem fitting that God would be angry uh, and he needs his anger problems dealt with. Maybe he could see a therapist, right? Like th th This is kind of the way people think about dealing with anger these days. Um, part of the problem is, um, as humans, we never see righteous anger, I don't think, ever. Like We see a lot of nitpicky anger. We see a lot of lashing out that's beyond what out of all proportion of what's actually due for the offence. Uh, we very rarely see anger that's just and right. The Bible insists that God's anger is always just and right. It's, just a, it's another way of talking about his judgment on sin, him giving people what they deserve. But the reason it's called anger is because it isn't dispassionate. God isn't the disinterested judge who's looking at his watch while he bangs his gavel going, I wonder if it's lunchtime yet, right? The reason is because on judgment day, God isn't just the judge. He's also the offended party. 
Friends, whenever we mistreat people, we mistreat people God created. Whenever we mistreat anything in creation, we mistreat God's property. Everything's personal in this trial. God created everything, and he cares very deeply for the way we treat his creation. So all the offences that are committed that come out on the Day of Judgment are primarily against God, and so he's angry. It's another way of talking about his judgment. But his anger is measured, it's just, it's what's actually deserved. But here's the amazing thing about Christianity that I don't think you can find anywhere else. There's a tr- on this trial, there's the judge, who is the offended party, and there's us, who deserve condemnation. And in Christianity, you have the judge coming down, the offended judge, to take the punishment on himself, to take his own anger on himself. Jesus died the punishment that he was going to give to us. He decided to take it upon himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit took it, the Trinity took it on themselves in the cross of Jesus, turning aside his own anger for our sins so that we would never have to suffer it. Isn't that extraordinary? Absolutely extraordinary. He turned aside, he exhausted his, his anger, his own anger that we deserved. Now, here's the uh, passage with some of our definitions plugged in, and I hope you can see, makes a little more sense, um, and you can see why it's so wonderful. Listen to what the passage says with some of our definitions plugged in. It says, But now, a way of being declared righteous from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This way of being declared righteous from God comes through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust in Jesus Christ. There's no difference for all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous freely by his grace through the deliverance that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as a bearer of his anger by his blood to be received by trust, to be received by faith, having confidence in him. I hope you can see how wonderful that is. Here's what it does to Judgment Day. Sure, everybody deserves to be in that box, but now there's a path across by the death of Jesus, so many will be named righteous who, standing on their own feet, on the basis of their own works, never could be. Only by trusting Christ do we gain this new status of righteous before him. Now, there's, a couple, there's quite a few entailments in the passage of uh, implications. Let me give you two uh, here in the passage. Have a look at verse 27. You've got your Bible there. Here's an implication for us. Two implications. Number one, where then is boasting? It's excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. No boasting is the first implication. If you're a Christian, I hope you real, like that humbles you. You realise I don't deserve anything God, good things that God is actually giving me. He just giving it to me as a free gift. I'm not better than anyone. You're not better than anyone. It should humble us. It should make, here's the, uh, the way of saying it that I love, um, it should make Christians come across as poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. That's what it should feel like. We're poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. A whole lot of bread. <laughs> More than bread. But you get the idea. It shouldn't make us humble. It shouldn't make us proud. We're not better than other people because we know the day of judgment without Jesus would be disastrous for us. Here's the second thing. Friends, how can you know that on the day of judgment you'll be declared right in God's sight and he'll welcome you into his kingdom? Here's my answer. Well, because I'm a sinner who deserves his anger, but because of Jesus, God's anger against my sin has been turned aside. He's redeemed me into his kingdom forever. It's all all what he did. 
I know I have a righteous standing before him because I've placed my confidence in Jesus instead of in myself. I've just got to ask, I don't know all of you that well. On what basis are you prepared to stand at the final judgment? Is your confidence in Jesus? I need to be very clear on that. I said at the beginning, I want these passages we're looking at to be embedded in your thoughts and your hearts and your minds. They should change the way we approach life. You need to get to know them for them to change the way you approach life because when you get to know them, your fears are stilled, your anxieties are done away with, you can confidently face even death itself. Um, a, a few years ago, a, a Christian man I knew, he died two years ago. This was a decade and a half ago. Um, he was in hospital, I think, heart surgery was what it was. Very mature Christian man uh, who I looked up to a great deal. Um, he, uh, he was scared. Uh, he was in hospital. I think he, was, he must have been alone at this point just at night and he was very anxious and he was very scared. What do you do when you're very scared and anxious you, in that sort of situation? He turned to the promises of God that he'd learned to love over a lifetime. He turned to this passage. He reminded himself that he is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. He turned to Romans 8, he told me. Uh, Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you can't face those times with Christian confidence unless you get to know your Bible and unless you've learned to cherish the promises of God like these ones. Because that's what makes Christians approach life different to other people. We have our confidence in a great saviour and we know his promises in the scriptures here. What confidence, friends, do you have to carry you through times like that? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a just God, first of all, even though that is very unpleasant for sinners. Uh, we, we want to thank you that you love justice and righteousness and you'll do what's right. And we thank you that you want to end evil and you will. We thank you, though, that we won't just be condemned on that day when you judge evil. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much that it is simply by faith, simply by facing our, uh, placing our confidence in him that we have right standing with you forever. We thank and praise you for that today. Please help us to know what it means to trust him through every stage of life, when life's good and happy, when life is hard and difficult. Most of all, Father, help us to embrace that, uh, that sure hope we have of standing in right standing with you forever on Judgment Day because of him and not because of us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.